arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty in the Kennedy Paradox, and we're laying some groundwork for the events that lead to return to Dallas and the Kennedy assassination. I'm sure you're wondering, is this really the timeline and events of the Bay of Pigs? Is it what really happened? (laughs) Would I lie to you? (laughs) I've never made up history. (laughs) No once. Okay, okay. Your host of these podcasts and the author of the books contained here within does not stray from the real events and timelines in his books. So there. Why go back in history if you're going to make up the history? Patch is in the thick of it, girls and boys, with his buddy Mankiewicz and that nutcase savage as they approach Carlos Sanchez, the 1986 terrorist. Episode 8. Let it roll. Chapter 29. Zapata Swamp, east of San Blaze, Monday, April 17, 1961, 7.03 a.m. Savage adjusted his pack and pushed his way out of the bushes again. Troops lingered on the road across the swamp. Patch turned quickly. Paratroopers are on the road. I'm aware of that, Kincaid. We're losing time. Patch shook his head as Savage sprinted. Minkowitz increased his pace. Follow him, Patch. Pray he knows what he's doing. Patch's thoughts centered on Kate. She had left 1961, but where in the future had she landed? How much had his actions affected that future? He lifted his feet over the high grass as the gunfire continued further west. Savage suddenly darted to the left, toward a couple of tall palms and more bush. Patch slowed for Mankiewicz, who waved him forward, but he waited and jogged next to his friend. They hiked diagonally away from the road. Savage waited for them at the clearing's edge. Take some water, we're getting closer. What about Carlos, asked Patch, and he poured the warm canteen water into his dry throat. Savage squinted and bit his lower lip. Not yet. He snapped his helmet in place and pushed the bush branches back. Mankiewicz wiped his mouth and screwed the top back on his canteen. Say, he's a nice guy. Yeah, right, just like El Barbudo. Who's that? Castro or Blackbeard the Pirate. Take your choice. Bypass Road, Zapata Swamp, Monday, April 17, 1961, 9.30 a.m. Patch tracked the high-flying sea fury with the binoculars until he lost the plane beyond the trees. A blast that prompted all three men to dive into the brush preceded several minuscule explosions. Patch held his helmet and looked south. A small fireball reminiscent of the nuclear explosion over New York in 1986 ascended into the sky. Somebody shouted something about an atomic bomb into Savage's radio channel. A bomb? Savage stood. My guess is they got another ship. When do you call Carlos? He smiled and kept the smile on his face as he looked south toward a looping east-west road. You'll know, Kincaid, because I can call him with the code words, which are, Up here, he said, pointing at his helmet. Lots of space up there. I'll overlook that, Professor. You can hold Kincaid's hand crossing the bypass road. He stared at them for a few seconds, his arm and eyes glistening in the morning light. Then he broke into a sprint like an end in football, running a pattern across the narrow road. 
Minkowitz and Patch kept a 50-foot distance just in case the Cubans gunned down Savage. A few minutes later, Savage slowed and yelled back, The Rio Escondido is gone! A steady smoke stream billowed into the morning sky above the trees. Patch sensed they were near the bay. Savage jogged to the west, almost in the direction of the smoke. At a clump of tall bushes, he raised his watch upward, shook off a mosquito, and grabbed the radio. El Paso de la Muerte. Minkwitz tightened his brow. Patch. The kiss of death. Very good, Professor. El Paso de la Muerte. The radio hissed, and Savage checked his watch. What's the matter, Savage? Nobody home? asked Patch. Savage started forward again. You better hope he's home and he doesn't take us all out. Listen, there's frogmen on Blue Beach as well as the 6th Battalion. They know about this mission? Patch yelled. Savage did not answer as he ran. Patch waited for Mankiewicz to finish another gulp of water. Those planes came in straight, Ray, from the northeast. Easterly would be the first to tell you when they come in straight like that, it gives whoever was on the ground time to prepare. Apparently not enough time for the Rio Escondido. Savage appeared a few hundred yards through the bushes. Patch guided Mankiewicz after the crazy sergeant. Through the trees and houses, the heightened blue bay eventually materialized. Savage, his foot up on a fence post, barked into the radio as they approached. The static popped across the open channel. El beso de la muerte! Are you sure he's going to be here? Carlos Sanchez's voice mixed with the static. El beso de la muerte! Patch's gut swirled with adrenaline. Esto es Elvis, said Savage. Oh, for the love of Mike, said Mankiewicz as he turned. Carlos chuckled. In order to kill Rosselli and the others in the future, Carlos now performed this defecting charade. Okay, rendezvous at Disneyland. Despite his strong accent, he knew English. We'll climb the On my way, Savage faced Patch and Minkwoods. Blue Beach was taken by the 6th and 4th Battalions. They know nothing of this mission, gentlemen. We'll have to be quick and then move out. Hundreds of men in combat fatigues and caps scurried beyond the beach cabins. Jeeps, trucks, and a tank were visible to the west. Smoke from the Rio flared into the sky down to the bay. Four other ships remained in the harbor. Patch's heart pounded and his hands were clammy around the M1. Savage handed the radio and his pack to Patch. I'm walking down to the third resort cottage. No doubt this son of a bitch will have a backup. I don't think he's so brazen to go it alone. Then we head back to the swamp and not get involved with this operation at all. When we meet my contact at Playa Largo, we'll get the professor to command to Orca for his little vacation to a Havana. What about you, asked Patch. I'm off to find me a hundred thousand for Fidel. He tiptoed through the brush. Don't miss the leopard, Kincaid. They shadowed Savage from the west. Carlos Sanchez, the international terrorist from 1986, lurked along the nearby shore. Patch's stomach nodded as he repeatedly took deep breaths, but gained confidence marching beside Mankiewicz. In a few minutes, fate would take its inevitable course and test Korbinski's precise hypothesis. Chapter 30 Blue Beach, Iran, Cuba, Monday, 
April 17, 1961, 11.01 a.m. Along the clearing's edge, away from the third resort cabin, Carlos Sanchez, wearing a brigade combat baseball cap and fatigues, stood with a full pack and a mobile radio in his hand. He had a different type of rifle strapped across his shoulder. He gripped the rifle and scanned the woods as Savage proceeded across the sand and the grass. Patch gripped his rifle as machine gun fire erupted in the air to the west. One of the Cuban jets pummeled an older B-26. The lumbering plane descended quickly, only a few miles away. Both Patch and Mankiewicz fell to the ground. As Patch aligned his rifle, Savage whacked Carlos with the blunt end of his own rifle. But Carlos thrust the Russian weapon out, knocking Savage to the dirt. Patch lined up Carlos's pug nose profile in the M1 sights. Savage tripped the future terrorist as Patch and Minkowitz both fired and both missed. Carlos rolled across the grassy dirt. That stupid dumbass, growled Patch. In the bright sun, he and Minkowitz both unloaded the weapons again. Savage, on his belly, discharged his gun, but the agile Carlos, in a semi-gymnastic move, flipped to his right and upended on his feet. Five shots from the SK-45 mowed down Savage as he struggled to stand. Carlos panned the rifle. Bullets tore up the brush and the grass near Patch and Mankiewicz. Carlos dove into the woods. Patch shot at the bushes. We have to go after him, Patch. Are you all right, Ray? I'm okay. They ran over to Savage. A deep, red, oblong blood rivulet had formed in the dirt around the sergeant's punctured fatigues. Patch stared at Savage's rigid profile for a second. Then he pulled out the sergeant's playbook from the pack. He quickly located their position on the map. Ray, right here. Carlos said the Cuban troops were at the sugar mill north of Playa Largo. That's where he'll go, but we have to get him first. With map in hand, Patch faced the woods. Carlos had merged into the swamp about a hundred yards through the bush. Patch, that sugar mill is over twenty or more miles away. Patch guided him forward. He checked the sand until he picked up the divots where Carlos had just run. Unfortunately, he knows the area and could go anywhere. What choice do we have now, Ray? As they followed Carlos's trail into the bush, Patch chided himself for not firing before the dogfight and the subsequent plane crash. This time he would not hesitate. Cepeda Swamp, east of San Blaze, Monday, April 17, 1961, 12.16 p.m. By the sound of the small arms fire and the strafing F-26s, Patch reasoned the forces battle near the sugar mill to the west. He and Mankiewicz easily followed Carlos's boot marks in the soil and advanced along the crushed bushes and grass blades. Carlos had gone straight north from Blue Beach. At the edge of the grassy swamp, Patch squatted down and checked Savage's map. He's basically paralleling this road to Horkitas, and if he gets beyond that town, we'll have no troops there. He's home free. More than likely, there are Cuban troops defending that whole area by now. Patch, Minkowitz hit his shoulder and pointed to the far side of the clearing. A small flock of sparrows had just spread upward into the sky. An indiscernible movement along the woods caused him to remove the binoculars. At a thousand yards, Carlos Sanchez pranced northeast like a gazelle parallel to the Horquitas Road. Can we get him from here? 
Hollis's dark fatigues blended in with the leaves. Pat shook his head. Neither one of us is that good a shot. Minkowitz pounded a mosquito on his forearm. We only have so much ordnance, we better make it count. Patch waited until Carlos entered the woods again. Then holding their weapons outward, he and Mankiewicz plowed across the prickly zapata grass. Carlos did not look back before he disappeared. His northerly direction indicated he had sought the safety of his own forces. The crushed grass and small bush branches matched Carlos's entry point ten minutes before. According to the map, they would be encountering the edges of the town very soon. Carlos Sanchez's survival depended on his returning to the Cuban populace and rejoining the government troops. Patch lifted his boots and stepped on the bent branches or disturbances in the soil, just as he followed Carlos's trail from Blue Beach. Minkowitz's grunting alerted him to the fact that both of them were tiring. On the far side of the clearing, a smooth body of water reflected the blue sky. Carlos ran along the opposite side of the lake. Patch increased the pace 25 yards ahead of Mankiewicz. He still hesitated firing at Carlos from this distance. Once he reached the mangrove clump along the water, he descended to one knee as Mankiewicz scurried through the grass behind him. Carlos hiked unruffled along the shore, perhaps 300 yards away. This time Patch raised the M1 slowly taking his time to place Carlos directly in the V-shaped site. Carlos crouched as he trekked north along the water's edge. Patch gently squeezed the trigger. The crack echoed down the water's length. A bunch of white egrets down shore scattered like a splash from a rock thrown in the water. Carlos somersaulted over into the water just as Minkowitz reached Patch. I got him. I know I got him, said Patch, standing up straight. I don't see him. Knocked him right in the water, said Patch, clenching his fist upward. I did it. I killed him. Mankiewicz half smiled as if he were not fully convinced. Well, he hasn't surfaced yet. Patch leaned back on one of the roots. He exhaled slowly and tears came to his eyes. He'll never set those bombs, Ray. The bastard is gone. Those first battalion paratroopers are on the San Blaise Road. We need to get the hell out of here. We're too close to the enemy. Then we can contact Luntz. What about Higgins? They want you to debrief him and convince him to come back. Here's the way I see it, Patch. The main mission, he said, looking back to the water, was to kill Sanchez and stop him from becoming an international terrorist in the 1980s. You just did that. Mission accomplished. Once the brigade gets to Havana, I can deal with Higgins. Understood. Patch stood and motioned Minkowitz back with the gun. In the sky, the T-33 jets attacked more of the brigade's B-26 propeller combat-painted planes. Patch checked the map. We're less than a half an hour from that road. If we don't get shot, we'll be okay. Mankiewicz froze like a compass needle stuck in a northward direction. Carlos swam toward the opposite shore at the far end of the water. I thought for sure you shot him. How the hell did he stay under? Both men reversed direction and at full speed returned to the water's edge. Patch again got down on one knee. Mankiewicz had already commenced firing his weapon. The bullets clearly splashed in the surface around the swimming Carlos like massive hailstones. He's too far away, Patch. Patch reloaded the rifle clip, but Mankiewicz grabbed his arm. We need to chase him again. Can't believe I missed him. Carlos emerged from the water on his knees like an amphibious monster and crab-walked into the woods. 
Patch jogged ahead of Minkowitz up the shore, but he had forced Carlos West toward the 1st Battalion troops on the San Blaze Road. Killing Carlos now required getting closer and not missing. Chapter 31 Cepeda Swamp, east of San Blaze, Monday, April 17, 1961, 2.11 p.m. Sweat beaded across his forehead and soaked into his fatigues. When Patch lost Carlos's trail, he retreated back to the Cuban's last known sighting, broken branches by a trickling stream. Patch wiped his brow with his sleeve and then kicked at the mud. He had no indication whether Carlos had plowed through the swamp or crossed to the opposite grassy shore. So, he just disappears, asked Mikowitz. With the rifle strapped to his shoulder, Patch straddled two clumps of hardened earth. I say he traveled in the stream bed itself, but I don't see anything stirred up. He got away. Maybe it's okay, Patch. It may have stopped the 1986 attacks. There's no way to determine that, Ray, unless he's dead. Minkowitz positioned the binoculars toward the next grassy area. Activity over there, Patch. What is it? Probably the 1st Battalion. Let's link up with them and send a contingent out after Carlos. Patch shook his head. You go to the 1st Battalion, Ray. If they're across this clearing, then Carlos must have gone north. No, we shouldn't separate. I can see the handwriting on the wall, he said, ripping off his pack. He threw his radio at Minkowitz. I'm going to kill him, Ray. I'm going to kill him right now. Patch, you're not thinking clearly. Patch! Patch leaped into the clearing and he held his rifle over his head. He hopped like a jackrabbit in the afternoon shadows. The matted down grass blades trailed in a northerly direction toward the distant farmland. But the terrain changed abruptly. He carried his weapon diagonally as he traipsed across more mushy ground with occasional water pools. Carlos's boot prints, solid in the mud, turned westward. Maybe he wanted to get out on the road. Patch lumbered toward the road, several hundred yards away. In his haste, he tripped and his weapon careened into the mush. He leaped up, his fatigues dripping with water and mud, but his rifle lay submerged in a foot and a half of water. The swamp's sulfur mulch inundated his clothes. He unbuttoned and removed his saturated shirt. Then he grabbed the dripping, wet rifle. He grunted and hurled it across the grass. With no weapon, he raced in his olive undershirt toward the mangroves. Fighting continued to the west. Upon leaving the swamp, he reached a point less than 100 feet from a barbed wire fence paralleling the quiet asphalt road. Survival dictated procuring a weapon from the 1st Battalion to the south. He looked back across the swamp and wished he had not left Mankiewicz alone on the other side. Just a few feet from the fence, a shadow blocked the sun. Carlos, his mouth open wide in rage, stormed at him like a rabid grizzly bear. Patch pivoted but could not brace himself. Carlos's forearm and left fist impacted against his shoulder, hard enough to send him back. He landed on his side and immediately spun into the grass. Carlos leaped on top of him with his arms extended. You are an American! He pinned Patch's shoulders back. His enraged dark eyes and exposed incisors were inches from Patch's face. You are firing at me. You're crazy. I'm Kincaid. My weapon was taken by the brigade. I escaped them from along the road. Carlos grabbed his jersey and hoisted Patch to his feet. You've been in the Zapata. I don't believe you. Why the hell would that American be fighting against these invaders? I'm here to join the revolution. 
Carlos released his grip and then laughed. <laughs> and you are a lousy American actor. I'm on my way to the Revolutionary Forces. Carlos squinted. I do not believe you. Eric Bonheim's people contacted me. Carlos inhaled and stepped back. You will come with me as my hostage. You are an American. What are you going to do when the brigade takes Havana? We have to stop them. This whole invasion is a joke, said Carlos. Out to the road. You are my prisoner. He shoved Patch toward the barbed wire fence. Without a weapon, Patch had no hope of killing this hulk. Both men stepped onto the asphalt and started north. Up ahead, a truck started down the highway, but back toward San Blaze as the tank rolled forward. The brigade, shouted Patch. As soon as he could grab a weapon, he would kill Carlos. Back the other way. A pack of soldiers ran forward between the jeeps. This is insane. I will not be a prisoner to any man. He shook his head and grabbed the back of Patch's neck. If we run, we will be executed. Patch did not see Mankiewicz. The two jeeps whined to a sudden stop diagonally across from the highway and exhaust hung in the air. A shot man with several days' beard growth stepped forward. You are a prisoner. Carlos studied Patch closely. Kincaid, tell them. Tell them we are not afraid to die. Listen to him, shouted Patch, still searching for Mankiewicz. You will listen to us. You two will move ahead of the brigade into combat. He turned to the men in the truck. March them first. You will be killed by your own men. We've been taking their damned artillery since noon. They were forced up the road under several skinny palm trees. Some little brigade lieutenant ordered them to stay ahead of the advancing trucks or be shot. I have another man with me, Carlos, a physicist, Ray Mankiewicz. Carlos again stared at him. For what reason do you defect, Kincaid? Bonheim? No, Higgins. Mankiewicz and I can help Higgins and the Soviets. Are you shitting me? Carlos leaned closer as he stepped forward. I still do not trust you. Cuba is crawling with men who want to kill Fidel. And who exactly are you? Patriot, who is supposed to be in the United States. You mean defect? If that's what it takes, my friend. A mortar shell exploded in the grass and debris sprayed onto the highway. They knelt down on the road shoulder. Somebody yelled for Carlos to keep moving. To the north, Cuban soldiers were visible across the highway. Gomez will push these people back to Giron. Patch recognized the sound of 50 millimeter guns. Just before the explosion, the head shook the ground. How did we get by them? Somebody else will recognize me, said Carlos. They'd only gone a few hundred feet when a cluster of government soldiers appeared near the trees ahead. They are lining up bazookas and mortars. Get down! Patch planted his foot on the asphalt but slipped on the road dirt. As the attack commenced, the road exploded all around him. A deep pain tore across his left side and shoulder as he toppled over the scrambling Carlos. Blood trickled down his arm and pebbles had pummeled his shredded face. Carlos encircled his huge hands around Patch's wrist. He dragged Patch off the road. The 1st Battalion returned the fire from the convoy and the Cubans retreated. You saved my life. God damn it, you did. With pain in his ribs spreading up his arm. Patch had difficulty keeping his eyes open. His stilted breathing prevented him from standing. A brigade officer to the rear directed the machine gun fire at the government troops to the north. Water. 
said Patch, wiping the blood out of his mouth with his sleeve. Carlos stayed near him. Hold on, my friend, hold on. Then he saw the lieutenant standing over him. This man needs water, cried Carlos. The lieutenant quickly ripped a canteen from one of the soldiers. Where are the medics, shouted Carlos, lifting the canteen to Patch's mouth. As the lieutenant retreated toward the trucks, Patch lifted his chin up and spoke in a raspy voice to Carlos. Ray Mankiewicz, physicist, find him. He knows Stephen Higgins. He wants to defect. Carlos nodded and his head darted from side to side. I know this terrain very well. I will get us to our troops. I will help you, Kincaid. The sky fluctuated between a hazy blur and an occasional clear view of the treetops. Shells landed behind him as columns of exiles raced down the road. He closed his eyes again. Mankiewicz's whereabouts bothered him. Jets buzzed overhead as the pain throbbed in his ribs and shoulder. Iodine or an antibiotic odor drifted over him. Someone hoisted him onto a stretcher. They lowered him into the back of a vehicle, possibly a Jeep 4x4. The engine started and somebody shifted up the road. The sun singed his pitted wounds as they raced along. After a loud crack near the Jeep, followed by a downshift, the engine went out. The Jeep rolled to a stop. Carlos Sanchez bellowed out. Victoria Almorte! Jeep engine turned over and Patch's shoulder pushed against the metal as they jolted forward. Carlos rumbled off the asphalt and swung back on the road. Bullets pinged off the fender. The mortars exploded behind him now. Carlos screamed back in Spanish. Patch pictured the older Carlos killing Menkowitz at Sector 13. Another mortar shell exploded and dirt rained down as the Jeep spun. So Carlos Sanchez! Carlos began speaking in Spanish to some of the soldiers off to the side. Like a strobe light illuminating an object in the dark, Patch experienced portions of a bumpy ride under the tall, thin palms and fluffy-leaved mangroves. Jets swept down and small arms fire arrived from the west. His parched mouth and sun baked his face, squelching thoughts of killing Carlos Sanchez, the very man trying to keep him alive. Then he opened his eyes as the shade eased the hot sun. His body had grown weaker since the mortar explosion on the San Blaze Road. Somehow Carlos had squeezed behind the Cuban lines. Three soldiers gazed into the jeep. One of them checked his face and Carlos appeared. He said something to the man with the thin mustache. He needs to look at your wounds, Kincaid, said Carlos, leaning closer. I need water. A soldier brought a glass mug and a metal cup. Carlos filled the cup as the doctor lifted Patch's head up. Carlos slowly poured the water into Patch's parched throat. Patch coughed and then closed his eyes. Pain intensified. In a blurry image, he saw the doctor lifting his jersey. Then they injected him with something. The pain eased, but he went out. Central Australia, Old Sugar Mill, Hague Grande, Cuba, Monday, April 17, 1961. 3.05 p.m. Patch awoke with a binding around his ribs. His numb face no longer hurt. The anti-aircraft guns reverberated around the dirty metal building about 50 feet away. A towering smokestack rose into the afternoon sky behind a sloping tiered roof. Troops ran along the smaller colonnade building. Wide awake, said an old man with a thick accent. Patch pulled himself up. 
And he survived, said Carlos, now fully armed and ammunition belts over his shoulders. Not to worry, General Fernando is in charge and he will advance on Playa Largo. We are shipping you to the Centro Medico in Havana because you need antibiotics so the infection doesn't spread. But I warn you, you will be questioned after you recover. Okay. Your physicist friend was captured north of Playa Largo. Is he still alive? See, si, but he cannot go with you. The commander, he will be here at the mill very soon. He wants to interrogate Mankiewicz himself. Traitors to the revolution will be executed. No, no, he wants to defect. We'll see, my friend. You've saved my life. I am in your debt. Chapter 32. Township Airport, Baltimore, Maryland, Monday, April 17, 1961, 9.30 p.m. He did not know who was driving. The 1957 Chevy trailing the plane once they were outside, he recognized Fletch Knight. Robert? Ashman wore the same dinner jacket from the speech he had made earlier in the day. How's it going, Fletch? Things are not good. Ashman's relaxed demeanor never changed. Is that right? Ashman sent Martyr and his assistant over to the Chevy. He and Fletch entered a Cadillac to the left. He took out his pipe and faced Fletch as the Cadillac began the 20-minute trip to his suburban Washington home. Okay, let's have it. We're hanging on by our fingernails. They nixed the air cover because it was getting politically sensitive. Well, that makes no sense, Fletch. Adlai Stevenson has become a huge problem. Zapata is a failure. And there are other things, sir. Ashram stared out the window. Fletch's last edition bothered him. What other things? Bizarre report from Dan Preslin in Florida. The crime boss, Roselli, and eight other men saw the Landers woman disappear from Santo Traficante's hotel room at the Fontainebleau in Miami. Roselli's nonsense is well documented, Fletch. Well, it gets worse, and our own people share responsibility in this. What happened? Roselli arranged Ray Mankiewicz and this guy Kincaid and one of the Interpen men to be flown to Cuba early this morning. We don't need Johnny Rosselli in the middle of an operation like Zapata. Did it have to do with that G2 agent, Sanchez? Exactly. Ashcom nodded as Fletch continued. The Interpan sergeant is dead. Kincaid and Mankiewicz's whereabouts are unknown. No Americans were supposed to be involved in this. Again, he puffed on his pipe. The wiper swished along the windshield as the car phone rang. Asham. Yes, Bob. I'll call you back later. Not a pleasant situation, is it, Fletch? Not pleasant at all. I suggest you mix yourself a drink on the way out. I'm going to need more than a drink. Horrible. Kennedy enabled Castro. No air cover. Kennedy has allowed Castro to win both the air war and attack the troops on the ground. He's got to go. What was that, sir? Nothing. I'll take care of it. Men died who shouldn't have died on those beaches. And another thing, Robert, there was no effort to gather the opposition before this started. In my own mind, I was convinced that once the brigade was ashore, it would be like Eisenhower in Guatemala in 54. You fight to win. 
This is true. The most powerful nation in the world taking a hit like this. Ash can look out the rain bubble window. It's not right. It's un-American, said Knight. And we do have a problem with the mystery man, Kincaid, Ray Mankiewicz, and now a dead American. I'm aware of this. Roselli hired the pilot to fly them in. The Cadillac moved down the highway. Johnny Roselli should not be calling the shots about Carlos Sanchez. How can we interrogate Carlos Sanchez if Kincaid has killed him? Asked Fletch. The last word I have is after the sergeant was killed at Blue Beach, was Nankowitz and Kincaid went after Carlos Sanchez on foot. Ashcombe emptied his pipe in the ashtray. Ray Mankiewicz is much too valuable an asset to be chasing some G2 agent through Cuba. Last item, Roselli's story about the woman, Kate Landers. I heard about it also. There are eight witnesses. It almost makes me want to believe what Kincaid and Landers were saying, even though we clearly know it's impossible. Presently, how deep are we in with Traficante and the rest? It just thugs, Robert. Thugs can be used to one's advantage. I'm scheduled at the 7 a.m. White House meeting, but when I wake up, I need to get a read on the ground in Cuba as to the whereabouts of Sanchez, Kincaid, and Mankiewicz. We still have no background on Kincaid, said Fletch. Colonel Robert Kincaid is here from Japan assisting on the U-2 photos. I understand. Robert, we may just need to kill them. Castro prays him around, it'll escalate things with the Russians, and Khrushchev loves this shit. There's a fine line between success and failure. I'll check with you after your meeting. Again, Ashcombe stared out the rain-smeared window. World War II. What about it? A country's leaders can so easily destroy a country as Hitler was destroying Germany. Ashcombe thought back to how fragile history was on January 20th, 1944. He was on the periphery of the plot. From Switzerland, he was getting reports from inside Germany. Everything was done properly, except one thing. A thin copper tube containing acid would disintegrate the wire between the firing pin and the percussion cap in a mere 10 minutes. Stauffenberg had brought the bomb in his briefcase to Rastenburg, East Prussia Field Headquarters. Because Hitler was shielded by a wooden table leg, he survived the explosion. The failure to kill Hitler led to the arrest of at least 7,000 people by the Gestapo. Almost 5,000 were executed. The resistance movement was decimated. The assassination of Reinhard Hendrick in Prague was different. The car had slowed at the bend every day on his route. They traced it. Hitler lived and Reinhard Heinrich, possibly the next Fuhrer, was dead. What are you saying, Robert? Ashcombe stared at Fletch. I think you get it, Fletch. Yes, sir. I would like you to come in for a scotch, Fletch, said Ashcombe. No, thank you, sir. I insist. Okay. There are things to talk about other than Cuba. Chapter 33 Arlington National Cemetery, Washington, D.C., Wednesday, April 19, 1961, 11.05 a.m. Dietrich, from his position, 
above hundreds of symmetrically aligned white headstones, had a clear view of the towering monument to the first president of the United States. Down the hill and above the trees, the monolith provided a constant reminder of the man who used the element of surprise and aggression against his enemies. How you doing, John? Shitty. Kane had not shaven and looked rough. He adjusted his glasses and shook hands with Dieter. No air support, correct? Bundy canceled it. The whole thing is disgusting. We set this up so the president would respond and send in troops and air cover. They began a slow walk along the gravestones. You met with the president twice yesterday, correct? I did. I was with him early while the brigade still had a chance. I told him, in my opinion, that this operation was planned with air support. I told him that that brigade was penned down on the beaches in Playa Largo and Giron. We had the support of Eisenhower in Guatemala. When we needed military backup, Ike gave it to us. Kane's voice tightened and became louder. I blatantly asked him to save those men. Jesus Christ. He said he wanted minimum visibility. Castro born of a landowner, and now he talks about the working class. Dietrich folded his arms across his chest. Bill Ordway told Kennedy, God damn it, we had aircraft carriers with jets ready to fly. We could destroy Castro and his clowns in a matter of minutes, and Kennedy balked. I understand. What happened when you went back yesterday evening? The Joint Chiefs were at this meeting. I told them we could still salvage the operation. It was a matter of allowing American warplanes to fly cover. So did Admiral Benkus, but General Laurel made this inane statement about the brigade should join the underground in the Escranberry Mountains. Goddamn road is being cut off by the Cuban troops. 20,000 troops. It's all over, Bob. I will never forgive them for dicing up this plan because what it meant, he said, sweeping out his arm, it's the same thing it meant to everyone buried in the cemetery, except the men in Cuba have died in vain, and the living have been captured by Castro's communists. And for what? Castro has them all rounded up in the sports stadium in Havana, all because the president thought helping them was politically sensitive. Preslin called me, drunk as a skunk and ready to hang both Kennedys. And Dan will do it. I'll be fired and disgrace, and so will ask him in Ordway, while Kennedy charms the world. Kennedy had better not fire, ask him, said Dietrich, pointing his index finger at Kane. No one, no one humiliates Robert Ashcom and lives to tell about it. Kane looked him in the eye for several seconds, as if he did not want to confront that statement. Kane gazed back past the mall, toward the distant capital. Castro will never let the world forget this failure. I heard Dick Nixon say that Kennedy had turned chicken. Maybe Nixon can get him to change his mind, said Dietrich. Not going to happen. The operation should be considered for what it is, a failure. One more thing, John. What's that? He's got to go. Centro Medico, Havana, Cuba, Friday. April 21st, 1961, 9.57 a.m. The paucity of basic monitoring equipment in the Central Medico bothered Patch. Iodine overpowered whatever else lingered in the stuffy air. 
A young surgical team had repaired his shoulder wound last week and sewed the skin back in place. Shrapnel had been removed from the muscle and had barely missed his clavicle, major blood vessels, and lymph nodes. But he had survived the potentially deadly wounds. Under a single sheet, Hatch positioned himself in a metal frame bed. A few dozen soldiers injured in the attack occupied the other beds. His frustration mounted when communicating with the soldiers and the hospital personnel. They refused to answer any questions about Mankiewicz. Cubans that did visit him, including an army commander, bombarded him with questions about the brigade and U.S. intelligence operations. One of the nurses told him in broken English that President Kennedy would speak momentarily in Washington. He would probably address the Bay of Pigs invasion. Three soldiers pushed a large black and white TV across the room and fiddled with the tuner. They connected a brown wire to the back of the set. WCKT Channel 7 in Miami appeared on the black and white screen and someone announced they were switching to a feed from Washington, D.C. Hatch pushed his way up the flattened pillows as the soldiers walked from the room. Numerous Cuban interrogators told him the brigade invasion had failed. After capturing hundreds of men, Castro went on the radio to dramatize the great victory over imperialism. Kennedy having a news conference? asked Minkowitz from the doorway. Two soldiers accompanied him. Ray, you're alive! I made it through to the winning side, Patch. I was personally questioned by Castro himself at the sugar mill. Patch glanced at the TV as Minkowitz squeezed his hand. Patch, you were badly injured. Carlos saved your life. How are you doing? Hatch carefully couched his answer because of the brigade members having been brutalized in the interrogations at the sports stadium. Just a little busted up. Been questioned by everyone from a lowly private to Major Alvarez, head of the army. Oh, he spoke to me also. He's tough but fair. You said Castro spoke with you? He did. In a little office at a single desk with a phone. Then he went out front to fight. Apparently, Carlos spread the word about me because of what you said. The commander sent me to Havana. They want to keep me under a rock till I get to Russia. I lost my weapon in the swamp and then Carlos jumped me. I tried to convince him I wanted to defect. A mortar exploded and I prevented him from being killed. Here comes the president. Minkowitz turned as Kennedy stepped up to the podium at the State Department Auditorium. Gentlemen, I have several announcements to make. I know that many of you have further questions about Cuba. I made a statement on that subject yesterday afternoon. We are continuing consultations with other American republics. Active efforts are being made by ourselves and others on behalf of various individuals, including any Americans who may be in danger. I do not think that any useful national purpose would be served by my going further into the Cuban question this morning. I prefer to let my statement of yesterday suffice for the present. As Kennedy spoke about world hunger, Minkowitz faced Patch. I've already met with Higgins. He has a fair competence, but he does not have my knowledge or your knowledge. They questioned me for hours about my scientific prowess. Now they know. And I haven't seen Carlos Ray. I'm told he fought bravely at Playa Largo. You mean he's dead? No, he will be decorated by the commander. He single-handedly led his men against the brigade. 
They sent him somewhere in the country to recuperate. I told them how you and I work together, and I was told that you've told them that also. We're both do fine in Minsk, Patch. Of course, we'll do our part. Can you tell us anything about your talk with the Vice President last night? I brought uh, Vice President came to the White House at my invitation, and I uh, informed him of, uh, brought him up to date on the events of the past uh, few days. So when do we leave? Soon. Eric Barnheim is making arrangements for the Russians to fly us out of here. Great. I can be the next Yuri Gagarin. Uh, quite respecting your feeling of not going beyond your statement of yesterday on Cuba, uh, there still is in print this morning a quite widely distributed published report that you took the decision to continue training Cuban refugees with arms provided by this government and for releasing ships and fuel for launching the current operations in Cuba. Furthermore, this report says that you reached this decision against the advice of Secretary Rust and Mr. Bull. Now, is this true? I think that uh, the uh, facts of the matter uh, involving uh, Cuban will uh, come out in due time. Uh, I'm sure that an effort will be made to determine the facts accurately. But for me, I'm confining myself to my statement for good reason. Yeah? Uh, this is not a question about Cuba, it's a question about Castro. Uh, <laughs> could you tell us whether any intelligence that you have received can shed any light on the reports that the Prime Minister has been incapacitated, uh, that he has not been heard from since Monday or Tuesday, or uh, uh, reports to that effect? No, I, I cannot. I saw some, uh, I think, references on the ticket this morning. Mr. Castro was seeing some members of the press today. So I suppose we will have a better idea of that uh, later on. I would like to see my friend Carlos again. I understand. Hankowitz signaled to the door with his eyes. No doubt they were listening to the conversation. And time marches on. There's an old saying that uh, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, information is poured into you in regard to uh, all the recent activities. But I will say to you, uh, Mr. Van Oka, that uh, I've said uh, as much as uh, I feel can be usefully said by me in regard to the events of the past few days. Further statements, uh, detailed uh, discussions. I'll say this, Ray, said Patch. Kennedy took responsibility for it. Chatter in the hall and the arrival of five additional Cuban soldiers in solid green uniforms with rifles drawn sent Patch's heart a flutter. They formed a semicircle around the bed and stared like animated toys. The lean Major Alvarez smoked a tipperillo as he marched ahead of a lanky crew cut man in olive military garb. Alvarez had a thick dark mustache that tapered into a trim beard. He wore a tiled green beret, and his dusty military uniform showed he did not spend his time behind a desk. Although his interrogations were intense, he always had a ready smile. How are you feeling, Captain? Better, thank you, Major. Alvarez nodded and shook hands with Minkowitz. And I trust you are well, too, Professor. Ah, uh, yes, I am. Alvarez introduced the man with the dark crew cut as Dr. Stephen Higgins. 
Patch recognized him from the photos from the boat. Higgins smiled and shook hands with Mankiewicz. I don't believe we've met Dr. Mankiewicz, said the light-haired Bonheim, now smooth-skinned and 25 years younger. I am Eric Bonheim. I am Mankiewicz, he said, shaking Bonheim's hand. This is my associate, Patch Kincaid. Bonheim's cold eyes focused on Patch. Your courage on the battlefield has been noted by my superiors, Kincaid. Uh, but we do have some conflicting reports of this Colonel Kincaid, who was involved in the YouTube program spying on the Soviet Union. I have no affiliation with Colonel Kincaid. Bonheim nodded, but he looked as if he did not believe what Patch had said. You are alive for two reasons, said Alvarez. He puffed on the tipperillo and then he exhaled. You saved Carl Sanchez's life, and you have a scientific knowledge like Mankiewicz. Or make great progress, said Mankiewicz. The slender Alvarez put out the temperillo in the sink. The Russian plane will leave Cairo after the May Day celebration. Then you will be flown to Minsk. Well, that's great news. That is the time frame, said Alvarez. The commander wants you to as a part of the May Day ceremonies. I will see you there. And then off to Russia. Exactly, replied Alvarez with a smile. Fine with us, right, Patch? Patch looked at Mankiewicz. Doesn't matter as long as we're paid well. Bonheim shook his head. Such devoted revolutionaries. Chapter 35. Havana Sports Palace, Havana, Cuba. Wednesday, April 26, 1961. 5.48 p.m. How are you feeling, Patch? asked Mankiewicz as they sat down. Patch had not seen Mankiewicz in almost a week. He and Mankiewicz wore the same yellow shirts Castor had given the surviving prisoners from the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. The guards had seated them away from the brigade. My ribs are a little sore and the wound is healing. I'm trying to figure out why we're here. I'm sure some of the brigade men will recognize us. Word will get around. This way Castro can let the U.S. know he has us without creating an incident. I have two escorts over there. He pointed to the guards in fatigues holding machine guns 20 feet away. These people are brutal, Ray. In the crowd, Patch saw many of the unshaven faces from the Guatemalan camp. Castro, in the midst of the assembly, cigar in hand, enunciated his words into a microphone. Mankiewicz translated the Spanish. Castro, Mankiewicz told them, said Batista executed prisoners when Castro arrived on the shore during the revolution. These men have come to fight communism. I lost and are ready to accept the consequences. Patch listened as he scanned the crowd for Carlos. Castro says the prisoners thought they would be killed. Well, I did too, said Patch in a low voice. He says many things you're expected have not come true. These are the first prisoners in the world who get a chance to debate with the leader of the nation they came to invade. Ray, this all boils down to Carlos. I don't know if he'll still perform his bomb trick in 86. My assessment is we can't take any chances, Patch. You have to remember your mission. Assume that he will. We're boxed into a corner. We leave for Russia in a matter of days. We don't even know where Carlos is. You told me he was decorated by Castro for his fighting. Not the worst of it. I actually heard how he brutally tortured exiles right here at the sports stadium. Mankiewicz listened as Castro's words vibrated in the stadium speakers. Castro wants to know if they really expected to be seen as liberators. He said the people would have turned out. 
and that prisoners made a costly mistake which spilled so much blood, both yours and ours. After that, you can be angry with our people. Are you still not capable of anger against those who fooled you and were responsible for your lives? This is verbal intimidation, said Patch, as he spotted Felipe and the Korean prisoners. Felipe, he drove me to Camp X, there he is. Felipe's eyes opened wide as he looked at Patch and nodded slightly. Castro got them admitting that they had been misled. They're upset the United States didn't give him any aid. Mankiewicz looked at Felipe and then at Patch. Step one, we find Carlos. Agreed. Maybe. Castro spoke again. What did he say? Something about the United States? He said the United States has no right to tell Cuba what type of government they can have, even if it's communist. Hard to know who wants what. Several shots were fired somewhere in the arena. Patch leaned behind the support pole as the guards held up their weapons. In the confusion, Castro yelled out something in Spanish. He says not to get nervous about a few shots. Somebody accidentally fired. Patch closed his eyes as the banter continued in Spanish. Mankiewicz occasionally brought the words in English, but Patch did not listen. He finally realized that if he actually saved Carlos's life on the San Blaze Road, he now had to kill him. Chapter 36 May Day Celebration, Plaza of the Revolution, Havana, Cuba, Monday, May 1st, 1961. The crowd, sandwiched in the plaza below Fidel Castro, perhaps a million people, had gathered to hear his flamboyant, idealistic, and bombastic rant. Castro, in a bold green uniform, stood above them, behind a solid stone facade. His words echoed simultaneously through the plaza speakers, and the throng responded in a wild frenzy. Patch and Minkowitz sat just below Castro in a VIP section with soldiers, dignitaries, and flags. The translation came through a tripod speaker near the wall. Think of the men who died in the recent battles and decide whether a single drop of blood was worth being lost to defend the past. Consider that these workers and youths, the children of the workers, fell on 10 or 12 days ago to defend what we have seen today. They fell to defend this enthusiasm, this hope, this joy of today. That is why when today we saw a happy face or a smile of hope, we thought that each smile of today was a flower over the grave of a fallen hero. Patch winced and leaned toward Mankiewicz as the crowd applauded. Carlos should be on this platform, Ray, and he's not here. Mankiewicz nodded. He may be dead, Patch, and that will accomplish your mission. What about retrograde? Why haven't I been retrograded like Kate? I don't know the answer to that. What would have happened to our workers, our wives, our sisters, our factories? What would have happened if imperialism had established even a single beachhead on our territory? What would have happened if the imperialists had succeeded in taking one part of our territory and from there the, with Yankee bombs, machine guns and planes would have launched an armed attack against us? Major Alvarez applauded as he approached. Mankiewicz visibly squirmed in his seat as Alvarez stood next to him. He said nothing as Castro continued. The translation came through the speakers. This idea was not the ideal with which the Yankees inculcated their mercenaries. It was not the ideal of patriots. The ideal of the tongue, but not of the heart. It was not an ideal of those who came to recover their lost wealth. It was not the ideal of those who have always lived at the expense of others. It was not the ideal of those who sell their soul for the gold of a powerful empire. The mayor is giving a brilliant speech. 
Patch looked up at Castro, swinging his arms. Castro's snake eyes were like two focused beacons sending out his idealized view of the world. He is brilliant, Major. Alvarez pressed his lips and nodded. Castro spoke fiercely into the microphone. The translation came through, but Patch just rolled his eyes. The crowd cheered, but the Major, as if he were furious, shook his finger at both Mankiewicz and Patch. I have participated with the interrogation of Felipe Delgado. I know who you are and where you have come from, Patch. I understand why you have no background. I understand why Mankiewicz believes you. Be prepared. At the airport, Alvarez's dark eyes remained focused on Castro as he moved away. He walked directly to a group of men and smiled and shook hands. Ray, this may be our chance to kill Carlos. Chapter 37 Jose Marte Airport, Havana, Cuba, Tuesday, May 2nd, 1961, 10.45 a.m. The Soviet propeller-driven aircraft might have been mistaken for a small jet. Patch counted over 20 portal windows and something written in Russian above the wing. The letters CCCP and a serial number engraved below the tail reminded him of this plane's final destination, Soviet Russia. The 1957 green and white Chevy slowed near the plane. The brigade air attack with fake Cuban B-26s just two weeks ago left a jagged hole on the tarmac near the control tower. Seven people, including women and children, died during the raid. Bonheim's relaxed mood this morning no doubt contrasted to his feelings during the air attack. The East German turned in the front seat. Bun step closer to your new life. Finally, said Patch, uneasy with his communist credentials. Bonheim pushed a smile up his face like a dog ready to bite. Your dedication amazes me. Across the tarmac, the plane's engines revved in the morning air. A group of Cuban soldiers stood with rifles on their shoulders just below the aircraft stairs. Your stay in Cairo will be limited to only refueling, said Bonheim. You have a Spanish co-pilot who speaks English? and a Soviet pilot who does not. There's a flight steward who is Cuban, but speaks English very well. To be a long flight, I suggest you get some sleep over the ocean. I hope we can make a contribution with our knowledge, said Nick Woods. Patch looked around for any sign. Car doors opened and they stepped under the tarmac. Wind gusted slightly as the propellers spun. They shook hands with the tall Bonheim and thanked him, and walked between the motionless soldiers. Come on, comrade Kincaid, said Mekowitz. Patch raised his brows and then scanned the airport. As he looked back at the Havana buildings, he climbed with Mekowitz up the aluminum stairs. The Cuban flight steward, a thin young man in a white uniform, no more than 20 years old, greeted them at the doorway and guided them into the empty cabin. A spicy food aroma filled the cabin and covered food trays up front. I'm Jose Raymond Rodriguez. I will be your steward on the plane flight to the Soviet Union. I have been asked by the commander to cater specifically to your needs. May I get you something to drink? I'm all set. Maybe later, said Pat. Jose moved back up the aisle and Mankiewicz leaned toward Patch. If something doesn't happen soon, Patch, you and I had better start learning Russian and acquire a taste for vodka. You need to be prepared, Ray. Okay, I'm prepared, but where the hell is Carlos? Patch closed his eyes as the plane gained altitude over the island terrain. Going to the Soviet Union now prevented him from completing his mission of killing Carlos. 
and the possibility of retrograde increased with each passing hour. He replayed Castro's harangue in his head, but he obsessively wanted Carlos dead. Minkowitz peered out the window as they bounced along the air currents. We're about to bank over the Atlantic. As Minkowitz spoke, the plane angled downward. Beeps sounded, and Jose hurried into the cabin. Please buckle your seatbelts. What's going on here? Sir, we have a bad engine landing north of Santa Clara. Minkowitz looked at Patch as Jose headed up front. Green landscape flashed into view like a rolling conveyor belt. The outside engine sputtered and smoke flared behind the plane. They passed over rugged terrain and several large bodies of water as they circled. The plane swept over the jagged shoreline of a large body of water and pitched slightly toward a landing strip within the foliage. It hit the asphalt hard and rocked to a stop several hundred yards down the runway. Jose returned a few minutes later. Both Mankiewicz and Patch stood in the aisle. Come with me. Or what happens now? asked Mankiewicz. A jeep is being sent for you until we fix or replace the engine. We cannot travel to Cairo. You have a friend on the ground, senor. Patch nodded. Interesting. Several dozen troops in brilliant green uniforms surrounded a gray Toyota jeep positioned at the bottom of the ramp. White exhaust spewed away from the soldiers. A scruffy sergeant stood up in the jeep. Senor Kincaid, Senor Mankiewicz, usted vendor conmigo. Mankiewicz motioned Patch inside. Patch climbed over the passenger door and Mankiewicz slipped in back. The jeep engine whined as they raced away from the plane. The sergeant straightened the wheel down the runway and then veered onto an exit road through the trees. He said something in Spanish and Mankiewicz turned to Patch. There's a valise under the seat with high altitude photos of the area. Patch dragged out the brown leather case. He unzipped the top and pulled out photos of a reservoir, a large lake similar to what they had seen before they had landed. Mankiewicz stuck his head over Patch's shoulder and said something in Spanish to the driver. The sergeant spoke with one hand along a long, undulating green stretch. Mankiewicz spoke again in Spanish to the driver, and then he turned back to Patch. Carlos? Yes, Carlos has been sent to relax after the battle. He's been in the cabins near the dike. He's been fishing in the reservoir. The sergeant says he has weapons for us. Again, Mankiewicz spoke to the driver. He won't tell us, but he says we risk soldiers following us up here. Patch looked over his shoulder toward the airport. The jeep swung into a thicker forested area. A sign arrow for Santa Clara pointed east. As he checked the photos, he noticed handwritten initials in the lower corner of each photo taken from a high altitude. These are U-2 photos, Ray. And they were supervised by Colonel Robert G. Kincaid. His initials are on each photo. Then Korbinski had the equations, but the plain fact is your father has just provided you with the means to kill Carlos Sanchez and change everything. I don't believe in Korbinski anymore. The sergeant shifted down and headed south. The U-2 photos placed the upper edge of the reservoir only a few miles to the south. The highway forked at a wall road that traced the upper edge of the reservoir in a second area beyond a cluster of small buildings. The driver yelled something in Spanish into the air. Mankiewicz leaned back to Patch. He's dropping us in the woods outside the reservoir. Then he'll give us weapons. As they moved closer to the reservoir, Patch set the U-2 photos on his lap. Don't ask him yet what the hell are we supposed to do once we're successful here. I doubt our benefactor is going to fly us to Coconut Grove. Now, let me ask him. Mankiewicz leaned toward the sergeant and spoke to him. The 
The sergeant's face became animated, and he moved his arms back and forth. Mankiewicz nodded and grabbed the U-2 pictures. He set them next to Patch and then leaned forward again. Okay, thank you, said Mankiewicz, looking at the photos. So we meet Our Lady of Hope Church and her father Hernandez. He'll get us on a fishing boat and we'll be brought several miles out at Cayo Cornuco. They'll get us to Key West. The sergeant produced a nervous laugh and said something else. He says the plane will take off and hopefully the army will not be after us. Amen to that. The brilliant blue reservoir visible through the trees alerted Patch that Carlos Sanchez lurked nearby. The sergeant swung the jeep off the road to the edge of the woods. He jumped from the jeep and went back around Mankiewicz and followed Patch onto the road's shoulder. The sergeant held two Soviet SKS carbines. He threw one to Mankiewicz and the other to Patch. Then he removed the shells from the box. Would have been better with fully automatic weapons, said Patch. Beggars can't be choosers. Now I know why they dressed us in fatigues. At least we'll have the element of surprise. One shot will kill him. Agreed. Sergeant threw back the packs to Patch. Patch handed one of the packs to Mankiewicz and the sergeant shook their hands. He said something in Spanish and routed the jeep and hopped inside. The engine started and the exhaust swirled through the clean air as he looped back to the road. Patch turned to Mankiewicz as the jeep left the area. The stillness ate at his frayed emotions. He told us he wanted God to be with us. If Carlos doesn't die, he will live into the future and probably destroy everything. I know this. Mankiewicz held out the photos and tilted them away from the sun's glare. Less than a half a mile from the cabins, Patch. Patch pulled out a small pair of binoculars from his pack. And we have no idea where he is. I don't think there are too many people out here, Ray. He loaded the shell clip into the rifle and held the sight up to the sky. He's a dead man, Ray. What a disaster the Bay of Pigs was early into the Kennedy administration. The CIA clearly tried to bully JFK to get involved with air power, but JFK took responsibility anyway. Even the landing site was changed to a less advantageous area, and then the CIA came down on JFK forever. In the midst of it all, brigade members are killed or captured and patched behind the enemy lines, having saved Carlos inadvertently. He and Mankiewicz are in the sports stadium as the prisoners are paraded in their yellow shirts as Castro rants over the open mic. When they finally are cut a break on the way to the Soviet Union, Patch sets his sights once again on Carlos Sanchez. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Be there next Saturday night for the conclusion of the Kennedy Paradox. Rock and roll! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.